Church. My name's Peter, and today we are continuing our series, Summer of Champions. Did you enjoy seeing the new champions that we have up there? So each Sunday, we're going to be checking out some different champions that we have. And today, I want to look at one of the champions of the New Testament, and I want to talk about the disciple John. And so you might be familiar with John the Baptist, but this is another John in the Bible, and he was one of the closest disciples to Jesus. And so we know that there was 12 disciples, and whenever they're listed in the Bible, Peter is always listed first, and then it's James and John as the next closest one, and John calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. So we're going to be looking at one of the books of the Bible that he wrote. He wrote several books, but the one we're going to focus on today is a letter called 1 John. And so if you have your Bibles, would you open them up with me to 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And we're going to take a look at this in just a moment, but I'll, I'll give you a second to turn there. But this letter that John writes, he writes it at about 90 AD, making it one of the last books of the Bible to be written. And John is an old man when he's writing this letter. And he's been able to see uh, these incredible events of the New Testament play out over the course of his life. Where he started as a young man following Jesus, being a student of Jesus. And so he's able as an old man to say to the younger Christians that are around him, Hey, I walked with Jesus. I touched him. I ate with him. I listened to him and saw the miracles. I was there when he was crucified. I saw his resurrected body. I saw him ascend up into heaven. And so he has this incredible testimony that he can share. But John has also seen some of the difficulties that the church has faced uh, in the last few decades. It's been about 50 years since Jesus has uh, ascended into heaven after his resurrection. And so he's seen some of the challenges uh, where people like James, who is an early leader in the church, has been martyred. He's been killed uh, because of the gospel of Jesus. And Peter, who was the leader of the early church, he also has been martyred now for the sake of Jesus. And even Paul, who uh, was so influential in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles and traveling around, and who wrote so many books of our New Testament, he too has been martyred for the sake of the gospel. And John is still alive, and he's an old man now, and it's kind of fallen to him where now he is leading the church. And he writes this letter that we're going to take a look at, and so we're going to start in 1 John chapter 2. In verse 1, where he says, my little children. And so John is writing as a, a grandfather, as a father in the faith. He's an elder statesman, and he writes to his little children. And he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And that's his desire in what he's writing here, is that the church that he's writing to wouldn't sin. And for us, 2,000 years later, we're reading this, these words inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so he's writing to us saying, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He wants us to know that we have an advocate. We have a champion, and it's Jesus well, I want to jump down a few verses to verse 15, and this is where we're going to kind of dive in and focus on today with what John has to say. 
So in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now this seems like a, a bit of an extreme thing to hear John say, do not love the world. What does John mean by this exactly, that we're not to love the world? Is this just an old man on a rant against a world that has killed so many of his friends? Is this just a grouchy old guy telling us don't love the world? Or is there something more significant for us to see here? Because John also wrote the Gospel of John, which has John 3.16 that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so what is John saying here about the difference between the love that God has for the world, his covenantal, sacrificial love for the world, and the love that you and I have for the world and the things of the world, that friendship that we kind of have, that congenial love where we're in the world and enjoying the things of the world. What does John have to say to us about that? He continues in verse 16 where he says, for all that is in the world, here's everything that makes up the world. He divides it into these categories. He says, for all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions, or your translation might say pride of life. All these things are not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Well, the New Testament of the Bible tells us that Christians, when we decide to follow Jesus, we are not of the world. That when we make that decision to make Jesus the Lord of our life, we are a new creation. God's spirit comes inside of us and there's something different about us. We are a new creation and so we're no longer of the world. And Jesus talks about this in the prayer that he gives in John chapter 17. Jesus prays this really long prayer. It's the high priestly prayer of Jesus where he knows that he's coming towards the end of his life. He's going to be crucified and he's pouring out his heart and he's praying this big epic prayer to God, his father. And in it, he says some really interesting things for us to understand our place in the world. In John 17, verse 15, Jesus prays to his Father and says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And so Jesus' prayer for his followers to his Father is that we wouldn't escape the world that the goal is not for us to become a follower of Jesus and then try to make our way to heaven as quickly as possible. And it's also not our goal to escape the world by moving into the mountains and finding the most rural place we can and let's just all of us as a church will just go there together and escape from the world. But instead Jesus prays that God would keep us from the evil one. That we would understand that there's an enemy out there, that there's temptation out there, that there's sin out there. And Jesus prays that we would be kept from it. And then in verse 18, Jesus prays, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them 
into the world. And so as Christians, as followers of Jesus, what is our place in the world? We're not just, we're not of the world. We're a new creation. There's something different about us. But we're also not just kind of hanging out here in the world. We've been sent, just like Jesus came with a mission from his Father. We have been sent into the world. And so this is our place in the world. We're a new creation sent into this world. And so the question that I have for us today is, how do we live in this world without giving in to the temptations of the world? Because John talks about these three things that are in the world. They're not of the Father, they're of the world. And it's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Well, the desires of the flesh, for me, that's about Tuesday evening at 8 p.m., when I start to go, is there any ice cream in this house? And I'm digging through the freezer, and I'm coming up, oh, Haagen-Dazs, all right. And I sit down on the couch, and I turn on some Netflix, and, you know, I'm trying to slim down. That's my goal. And so I'm sitting down with the Haagen-Dazs, intending to just, just scrape a little off the top, just a little bit. I'll eat about that much of it, and then I'll put it back in the freezer, save it for next Tuesday when I start to feel that craving again. But what happens is 22 minutes goes by of an episode of The Office, and then I look into my Haagen-Dazs pint and find that, you know, sometimes they don't really distribute the chunks in your ice cream as evenly as you'd like, and so you've got to kind of dig in there for it. And then the next thing you know, it's, what happened? Oh, no, I ate all the ice cream. What a tragedy. Oh, that's terrible. It's the desire of my flesh. And sometimes the desires of our flesh are for things that we know aren't the best for us. It's not the greatest thing for us to have. We're not really supposed to have that. But our flesh desires it. And then there's the desire of the eyes. You know, we jump onto Instagram and we're looking through at these pseudo-celebrities and just thinking, man, if I only looked like that. Or man, if I could have that kind of opulent lifestyle, wouldn't things be so much better? And instead of being content with what we have, we're just thinking about all the things we'd love to have. And if only I could get my hands on that. And if that was in my life, wouldn't that be so great? And it's the desire of our eyes. And then the third thing that John talks about is the pride of life. And for me, that's the desire that I have to be self-sufficient, where I don't need anyone or anything. And I'm trying to build this little kingdom where I can handle whatever comes my way. So if there's a, a difficulty or a tragedy, I'm going to be ready. I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to have it all. I'm going to not need anybody's help. I can handle this myself. I don't even need God. I've got this under control. Or maybe we're struggling with an issue and we're just thinking, oh no, I can handle this. Won't, be, won't God be so proud of me when I do this on my own and show him how I've taken care of it? It's the pride of life that seeps into our heart. Well, these desires and temptations have been around for a long time. I mean, John is writing these words 2,000 years ago. But really, they've been around from the very beginning. And we can go back to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve are in the garden, and God has prepared a place for them that has everything that they need. And he said, you can enjoy anything in this garden 
except you can't eat from this one particular tree. Everything else is for you, just not this one thing. Well, Adam and Eve are going for a stroll, they're having a little walk, and they just happen to find their way close to that tree that they're not supposed to eat from. They just happen to be close enough that the devil, in the form of a serpent, a snake, is, starts a conversation with Eve and tries to convince her to eat this fruit. And so Eve and the devil, in the form of the serpent, they have this little conversation, and she's considering it. And I want to take a look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, and this is what Eve is considering as she is looking at this fruit. So it says, when the woman, that's Eve, saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. All right, let's take a look at that first part of that verse. Look at these things that Eve is considering as she is about to eat this fruit. First, the fruit seemed good to eat. The tree was good for food. It's the desire of the flesh Eve is looking at this fruit, and man, just considering it, her stomach is starting to rumble. Mm, her mouth is salivating. This seems like it would be healthy and nutritious. I mean, I really could go for this piece of fruit right now. It's the desire of her flesh. And think about this. This is before Adam and Eve have ever sinned. There is no sin inside of them. This is just the weakness of a human body that needs sleep and needs to eat. And just looking at it going, oh man, I could really go for that right now. It's the desire of the flesh. The next thing is that it was a delight to the eyes. And it's the desire of the eyes that John is warning us about. Have you ever noticed that temptation doesn't look ugly to us? When you're tempted by something, it seems beautiful. It seems great. This is a wonderful thing. You know, maybe after you've given in to temptation, you're going like, man, that was ugly. Man, what was I thinking? And maybe the people around you are going like, that's ugly, man. Stay away from that. But to you... It looks beautiful. No, this is a good idea. It's a delight to our eyes. And really, what are Adam and Eve doing near this temptation, near this tree? They just happened to be walking by, happened to be checking in on it. Have you ever been tempted by something and you're like, I should go and check and see if that tempting thing is still there? Yeah, it is. And then a couple hours later, you're like, oh, you know what? I should just check again and see, am I still tempted by that tempting thing? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm still tempted by it. We find ourselves circling these things that we know are a delight to the eyes that tempt us. It's the desire of our eyes. And then Eve and Adam, they have been given this whole garden where they can eat anything in the garden except for this. And yet they're not content with what they have. It's the one piece of fruit. Well, I've never tried that one, and it looks really good. I mean, it's not spiky. It's not something I have to get like a tool and crack it open. I could just eat it so easily. The desire of the eyes. And then the third thing 
is, the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And the devil tempts them with pride, thinking that we know better than God, that our plan must be better than God. And really, what is God keeping from me? Why would God keep anything from me? He's given me everything in the garden, and this must be a mistake, or maybe it's a test, and passing the test is eating the fruit. And we think our plan is better than God's plan. It's the pride that creeps into our heart. The devil is playing off of the desires of our flesh, the desires of our eyes, and that pride in ourself that we have. Well, Eve takes the fruit, eats the fruit. Adam, this whole time, has just been standing idly by, twiddling his thumbs, watching this whole interaction. All she has to do is hand him the fruit, and he gobbles it up. They fail the test. They give in to temptation. Well, thousands of years later, in the course of time, Jesus shows up on the scene, and he's beginning his ministry. And so he goes out, and he's baptized, and then the Spirit leads him into the wilderness. And for 40 days, he's in the wilderness, and he doesn't eat anything. And Luke chapter 4 tells us he was hungry. And the devil is tempting Jesus. And we can take a look at it at Luke chapter 4. And in verse 3, this is what the devil says to Jesus. He said, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Thousands of years have passed, and yet the devil is playing from the same playbook. It worked all the way back there in the garden, and I think it's going to work again. He goes after the desires of the flesh. And Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, in his fully human body, he is hungry. He hasn't eaten anything for 40 days. And so the devil is saying, oh man, son of God, miracle worker, how easy would it be for you to turn these rocks that look suspiciously like loaves of bread into real loaves of bread. And honestly, who among us has not been tempted by bread? It's a good thing that I'm not Jesus. I could not last 40 days and then be tempted with the miraculous power to turn stones into loaves and pass that test. But Jesus, he resists the temptation. He masters the desires of his flesh. He doesn't give in to temptation. But the devil continues with the same playbook. In verse 5 of Luke 4, it says, The devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil shows him. He plays off of the desire that Jesus has to save the whole world. His goal, his mission is to come and to save all the kingdoms of the world. He's come for all these people. And the devil shows him this. Jesus isn't requesting this. This isn't something he asked to see. This is something that he's being shown. Because the devil is trying to tempt him with the desires of his eyes. If I can get you to see it, and if there's already something good inside of you that wants this, then maybe I can twist it 
and I'll convince you to bow down and worship me, Jesus, and I'll give you everything that you want. After all, you came here with a mission, and today it could be done. Unfurl the banner. Mission accomplished. You did it today, Jesus. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. It's the desire of the eyes. And sometimes it's hard to control what you see. I recently took my family to West Edmonton Mall. We had a great time there. And one of the things that we did was we went to the indoor water park where they've got all the water slides and they've got the wave pool and the hot tubs. And one of the things that I noticed when I was there that was that all the young guys who were working there operating the slides and making sure the pools were safe, they were all wearing sunglasses. And I was thinking, guys, it is not that bright in here. Like, this is an indoor water park. What's going on? Why are you all wearing sunglasses? Until I clued in that it was so that they could look at all the ladies without anybody knowing where their eyes were focused. I, however, was not wearing sunglasses. And I'm there with my wife and my two young kids, and I'm walking around this water park trying to be very careful about where I am focusing my gaze. We can't always control what we're going to be able to see, but we can choose what we're going to focus on. We can't always control that thought that's going to pop into our head. Have you ever been in a worship time like we just had today where you're just trying to focus on Jesus and you're just trying to praise him and then all of a sudden that thought comes out of nowhere. And you're like, I am not trying to think about this. I'm trying to praise Jesus right now. We can't always control that thought that's going to pop into our head or or what we see. Well, Martin Luther has a quote about this. He said this 500 years ago. And he says, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. So you're going to have that thing that you weren't intending to see. You're going to have that thought that pops into your head. You can't control it any more than you can stop all the birds from flying over your head. But you do get to choose what's going to live in your head and what you're going to focus on and what you're going to be thinking about, just like a bird nesting in your hair. Well, Jesus resisted the temptation. He's taken a look at the kingdoms of the world, but he doesn't give in. He resists the temptation, but the devil doesn't quit. He's at it again in Luke chapter 4, verse 9. It says, and he took him, the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then he goes on to quote from scripture saying, hey, if you just throw yourself off this temple, God's not going to let anything happen to you. Angels are going to come. They're going to catch you. They're going to make a nice little ladder for you to walk down. All you got to do is just throw yourself off the temple. It'll be so great. And the devil is playing into pride and presumption against God. After all, it's the devil's sin was pride. That's what got him thrown out of heaven. And so now he's trying to tempt Jesus to make this arrogant assumption to just walk out onto the air and trust that God is going to catch you and take care of you. And I think sometimes as Christians we can fall into this similar trap where we think what we're trying to do is be like Peter stepping out of the boat onto the waves following Jesus. 
But what we really end up doing is just rushing and throwing ourselves off the temple and saying, I'm just going to go for it, God. I sure hope you bail me out of this and please help me. Ah! It's that arrogant assumption, that presumption that would say, I'm just going to do it and then really hope that God helps me with this. It's that pride that creeps into our heart. Well, again, Jesus resists the temptation. The devil hasn't changed his playbook in thousands of years, but where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus has victory. But for us today, how do we overcome these internal temptations that we see, these things that come from inside of ourselves? How can we overcome them? And how can we overcome these external temptations, these things that are presented to us, trying to pull us off track, trying to get us into a trap? How can we overcome? Let's take a look at them again. The desires of the flesh. Well, the culture of the world around us would say, desires of the flesh? Well, those are just natural desires. It's no big deal. You're made this way. There's nothing wrong with it. Treat yourself. But the Bible tells us that we are to walk in the Spirit. And so Paul writes to the Galatian church, and in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. And to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And so if we want to overcome the desires of our flesh, then we are to walk in the Spirit and let the Spirit of God lead us instead of just being led by our fleshly desires. And as we are led by God's Spirit, we're going to produce the fruit of the Spirit inside of ourselves. And we're going to see that love and that joy and that peace and that patience that Pastor Michael talked about last Sunday. We're going to have self-control. But it might require that we crucify our flesh, that we die to those fleshly desires. And we learn how to master our flesh. But we can walk in the Spirit. For the desire of the eyes, the world would say to us, it's just looking. What's the harm? There's nothing wrong with wanting more. Go for it. If you want it, you should have it. Well, Psalm 119 verse 37 says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. And give me life in your ways. And we need to learn that there is a difference between worthwhile things to look at and focus on and the things that are worthless. John writes to us and says that all these desires of the world, they're all passing away. But we know that there are eternal things. And so we need to look at what am I focusing on. And our prayer can be, turn my eyes from worthless things. Job says in Job uh, chapter 31 verse 1. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And for us, we can make a covenant with our eyes. Are we aware of what we're looking at? Are we considering the things that we're focusing on? And so we can make a covenant and say, here are the things that I am going to focus on. 
here are the things that are good and worthwhile, and I'm going to focus on these things. And here are the things that I know are worthless. They're not helping me. They're leading me in a direction I ultimately don't want to go. And so I'm not going to focus on and look at these things. It's a covenant that we can make. And if we are willing to humble ourselves against the pride of life, we can involve other people in this process to say, hey, here is what I'm trying to focus on, and here's what I'm trying to not focus on. Could you help me with this? Would you pray with me? Would you encourage me? Would you hold me accountable to these things? So that we can overcome the desires of our eyes. And then finally, the pride of life where the world would say, look at what you've accomplished. You've done this. You deserve it. It's good to not need anyone. It's yours, and you know what's best for you. But James chapter 4, verse 6, tells us that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we need to learn how to humble ourselves, that receive that grace from our Father. Well, when I think about these different things, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the the pride of life and these temptations that just want to lead us into traps, it reminds me of a book that I read when I was a kid. I read it in about fifth or sixth grade, and it's called Where the Red Fern Grows. And it's a children's book, but it had such an impact on my life that, I mean, I've talked about this with the kids, and I've talked about it with the youth, and I want to share it with you today. Because it's the story of a kid named Billy, and he has these two uh, dogs, these hunting dogs, and he's hunting raccoons with these dogs to kind of help provide for his family. But in order to train these dogs that he has, he needs to catch a raccoon so that he can kill it and then have the dog smell the raccoon's pelt so then they'll go and hunt some raccoons. So his grandfather helps show him how you trap raccoons without these hunting dogs that can kind of tree them and then make it easier for you to get them. So he has to go out and find some hollowed out logs or he takes a tool where he can hollow out the inside of a log. And then he takes a a worthless bobble, something that's just shiny, like a piece of a mirror or a piece of broken glass or uh, like just a little toy or a piece of tin can, just something that's going to catch the light and attract a raccoon. And then he puts it into the hole that he's made in the hollowed out log. And then he takes some nails and he drives them in at an angle into the hole so that it's just enough space for a raccoon to put its paw into the hollowed out log, and grab hold of that shiny object. But once the raccoon has made a fist, it can't pull its paw out past the nails that are in at an angle. Now, all that a raccoon would have to do to get out of this trap is simply let go of the worthless shiny object, and it's free again. But the thing about raccoons is that once they take hold of that shiny thing, They will never let go of it. And so Billy can come hours later and find and kill the raccoon. That's just been there, not letting go and just trying to find a way to get out of this trap. And for me in my life, I can see myself as that raccoon so often. Where I am chasing after and desiring these shiny, wonderful things that are ultimately worthless. 
and I go after them and I grab hold of it and I'm so excited that I got what I want and this is so great and isn't this wonderful that I don't even realize I am in a trap. And it's a trap that's designed to kill me. But I think, oh no, I'm going to be okay and I can handle this on myself and I don't need anybody and I'm sure I'll figure a way out of it. But I'm caught in a trap where the only solution is to let go and to give it to God, but instead, I'm just holding on, trying to figure it out. How many of us can be like a raccoon sometimes, just holding on to things that we know, I know I really shouldn't be holding on to this, but I want it, it's gonna be so good, and this is great, but it's leading us to death. Well, where Adam and Eve failed in the garden, We have failed. All of us know what it's like to fall into these temptations. The desires of our flesh, the desires of our eyes, that pride that creeps so easily into our heart. None of us have passed this test. And we need help. None of us can do this alone. We need a champion. And the origin of the word champion comes from the Middle Ages, where if there were charges that were brought against you, then you would be able to go and instead of having a trial by a judge or a a trial by a jury like we would have today, uh, you could choose trial by combat. And if you were a woman or elderly or for some reason they allowed the clergy to do this, and if you were in one of these three groups, then you would be able to hire a champion to fight on your behalf. And so you would go out and you would hire the baddest guy that you could find to fight for you. And if your champion defeated the other guy's champion, then you win. But if your champion lost against the champion, then you lose. Or if you see your champion is losing, then you can just settle. Jesus is our champion, but he's an unusual champion. Because first of all, it's a little different for us because there's not just charges that have come against us, but we have been found guilty. All of us have sinned. We've all broken God's laws. There's nobody here who can say that they are innocent. We're all guilty. And also, none of us here could hire Jesus to be our champion. What do we have to offer the Son of God to come and fight for us? How could we convince him? It's impossible. But instead, Jesus sees us in our guilty state. And he sees that the punishment for our crimes is death. And he chooses to take our place. He takes our punishment. And so instead of fighting for us, he dies for us. And he dies a suffering death on the cross. He dies. And it's in his death that he claims victory over sin and death. And he rises again triumphant. And now he makes it so that we can be champions. We're on his team. We've done nothing in this equation. It's all him. And we just say, yeah, I want to be on that guy's team. And suddenly we get to be a champion. Well, John, as he was writing this letter, 1 John, he says, my little children, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. That's his desire for us. But that if we do sin, that we would know that we have an advocate. We have a champion, and it's Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
He is our champion. He stands before the Father for us. And that is why we can be righteous, why we are innocent, why we win. And he sent us into this world. But we need to contend with these desires that are in the world, these things that are passing away, but they're so lovely and enticing and great. And all of us know what it's like to fall a little bit in love with the things of the world. And so the question that I have for us today is, how are we doing with these desires and these temptations? Are we overcoming the world or is the world overcoming us? How are we doing? 